My name is Brooke Cunningham, and I'm a general internist, a sociologist, and an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. In this essay, written after the killing of George Floyd, I reflect on how the health effects of racism become embodied for myself and other Black Americans. It was 9 a.m. on May 26, 2020 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I logged into my first Zoom meeting of the day, a gathering of my community advisory board. I opened the meeting, as I typically do, with check-ins, particularly important during a pandemic. I mentioned some upsides of staying at home, probably in an effort to mitigate what came next. I shared that my cousin, a nurse who worked in a New Jersey nursing home, had recently died from coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. His employer had failed to provide him with sufficient personal protective equipment. I felt the tears well up in my eyes, but quickly composed myself, relieved that we were still in the first few minutes of the call. People were still signing on, so only a few caught a glimpse of my emotion. One or two others gave their intros and updates, and then another joined. She explained that she was late joining the call because she had been on the phone with her distressed son. No worries. Family first. Totally understandable. She continued, I am angry this morning. The police killed another unarmed black man. My mind swirled. I had not heard the news. I often listen to NPR in the mornings, but I had not done so that day. The woman's words began to blur together after she said, the police killed another. I felt like I'd been struck with a body blow for which I had not braced, like the punch that leaves a boxer dazed and teetering on his feet. I needed a moment, but I did not say that to the group. Physicians learn early to compartmentalize. Displaying emotion at work can be a liability, particularly in biomedicine, especially as a black woman, and especially as a researcher. So I tried to press on to speak with the controlled language and self-presentation that is normative, even when it's off the mark. My community advisory board meets only every month or so, and we had items to attend to on the agenda. I briefly expressed my anger and sadness, and I mentioned the obvious tie to our work on racism as a health risk factor. While that was accurate, I immediately knew that it did not make anyone feel the slightest bit better. I found no solace in it myself, and perhaps that was what cracked the veneer. The tears came full on this time. I covered my eyes with my hands to prevent the tears from falling, pursed my lips tight to hold in what would have been a scream if I were alone, and took a deep breath as I let the moment set in instead of pushing it away. And the community advisory board, which is predominantly Black, did what it always does. It shored me up. Black board members unapologetically expressed their anger and frustration, not only with the police, but with business, and in this case, research as usual. As the meeting ended, I realized that for other board members, the conversation may have been as up close to Black pain as they had ever been. At 11 a.m., our meeting ended. I paused before I opened my search engine. The board's love and support had helped me regain my footing. But as I thought about watching the video recorded by a Black teenager who bore witness, all I felt was dread. At that point, I did not know the details. 
I did not know George Floyd's name nor how he died. I just knew the police killed him. When will they stop killing us? I asked myself, fully knowing no answer would be forthcoming. Another question followed. Am I ready to turn up? It was actually two questions in one. First, I was trying to figure out if I could handle witnessing a black man being murdered again. The question wasn't whether I would watch, but whether I should watch right then, knowing the potentially damaging physical and psychological effects of witnessing. Was I ready to watch the police kill a stranger who was still family? Witnessing is important because the police often do not tell the truth, and it's harder to be lied to if you have seen murder with your own eyes. Witnessing is important because even a masterful storyteller might fail to fully capture the horror. Witnessing is important because to bear witness is to honor Mr. Floyd's life. For the people on the scene, witnessing is an attempt to protect because maybe this time the police will stop when they see us watching. Witnessing is holding Mr. Floyd as we would a loved one on their deathbed to let them know that they are not alone. Just thinking about watching the video, I could feel my chest tighten. My pulse probably quickened. I know that I began breathing deeper and more slowly to get rid of my nervous energy and in an attempt to counter my activated sympathetic nervous system. I knew that when I watched, I would feel a threat to self, knowing that I and my loved ones, my extended self, were always also at risk. Of course, I would not go into full fight or flight. The threat of police violence was real, but not immediate. I was in my apartment after all, but so was Brianna Taylor. Black people have talked about race-related stress and its effects on the body for decades. We know that microaggressions, microassaults, and frustrating interactions with white-controlled institutions can get your pressure up and lead to racial battle fatigue. Even anticipating exposure to racism is associated with hypertension, obesity, and delaying care in order to avoid experiencing discrimination. Newer research on vicarious racism learning about or witnessing others experience anti-Black racism, such as via dash cam or cell phone videos, finds this form of racism to be harmful to your health as well. Academics often call exposure to racism race-based trauma or race-related stress and refer to the body's pathophysiological responses to that chronic toxic stress as weathering or racism becoming embodied. Acute activation of the stress response can save your life. But chronic activation contributes to allostatic load, that is wear and tear, which leads to diabetes, hypertension, depression, dementia, and other adverse health conditions. Fully aware of the potential consequences, I watched the video. I cried hard, and I did scream. I wanted to break something. The question, am I ready to turn up, now took on its second meaning. What was I ready to do? My attention turned briefly to Martin, then quickly pivoted to Malcolm, and then to NWA. Their words and images came forth from memory, colliding as I struggled to figure out what I could do and who I should be in this moment. 
I finished work because like most of us who still have jobs, I had to work. I've seen one YouTube post by the internet personality Evelyn Nguji about calling in black to work, sickened from the latest news of yet another police killing of an unarmed black person. But that was not an option I had. There has been a good amount of talk about resiliency and ways to work productively while coping with the uncertainties of the COVID-19 pandemic. In contrast, few have addressed how unreasonable it is to expect Black people to show up ready to work after repeatedly witnessing their own death. The response from managers and organizational leaders to police brutality varies. So often, the response is too late, too measured, too neutral, and as such, too familiar. I remember Philando Castile. He was killed on Wednesday, July 6, 2016, by a St. Anthony, Minnesota policeman who was charged but subsequently acquitted. One day after Alton Sterling was killed by Baton Rouge, Louisiana police officers, no charges were ever brought. I remember walking into the physician workroom at the end of that long week, quiet, trying to hold it together, avoiding eye contact. Not sure if I wanted to talk to my white colleagues that day. I was relatively new on staff. We were associates, not friends. And I wasn't sure what they were going to ask of me that day. I knew my colleagues well enough to know that they too would have heavy hearts. However, I also knew how easily black people's needs fade into the background when white people are in their feelings. I teach about racism and health, but I did not want to be, and to their credit, they did not ask me to be their teacher or counselor that day. During the evening of the day after George Floyd's death, I texted my friend, who like me is a new mom and Minneapolis resident. We had gone on a socially distant walk with our toddlers to the extent that is possible the day before. Her picture of our not yet two-year-olds hugging in their matching pink pants was the last message in the text chain. I am so tired and sad, I wrote to her. Our children are so beautiful and they are brown in America. My friend is not black, but she is brown. And black and brown mothers have concerns that white mothers do not. We stand watch over our children as this world tries to deny their beauty thwart their genius, dim their light, and too quickly take their innocence. We know the day will soon come when we will have to dry their tears and remind them that they are everything. We hold them tight because we know there will be other days when we will not be there to comfort them. When George Floyd called out mama as he died, I heard my own child's voice in his. His call for mama sounded like her call for me when she is scared in the middle of the night and yet knows, even in the darkness, I am there. Because I am the mother of a toddler, I am always exhausted. Most nights I am asleep by 9.30 p.m. But that night I could not turn off my brain. I was still awake at 10.45 and at midnight and at 2 a.m. We know how important sleep is for health, yet a growing literature shows that racism keeps Black people up at night. Blacks sleep fewer hours and experience more sleep disruptions than whites. 
for many of the reasons that kept me awake. That night was filled with the noise of helicopters and sirens. Though I tried to still my mind, I replayed Mr. Floyd's death over and over again. His murder was the worst type of everyday racism. Though the phrase typically refers to the ordinary experiences of unfair treatment to which Black people are routinely subjected, such as disrespect, given the regularity with which Black people are killed by the police, everyday racism seems a fitting description. In whatever form or intensity, chronic exposure to interpersonal racism is maddening. If you are like me, you are angry that it happened again, that you didn't expect it when you should have, and that the perpetrator is unlikely to be held accountable and probably went about their day unbothered, with no, though sometimes with full, awareness of what they had done. And here you are, still thinking about it. I decided to write that night as a means to process and hopefully quiet my thoughts. Rebroadcasts of news programs played in the background. The hosts all commented on the city's action to swiftly fire the four policemen. I was not sure if I detected one commentator insinuate undue haste. I sighed. Then they showed the protests and a press conference with the mayor. Being Black should not be a death sentence. And the attorney general. This is a national historic problem. People are outraged by it. They're sick of it. And they want government to be responsive. Maybe this time it will be different. Hope feels foolish and necessary at the same time. In the past, calls to eliminate racism have largely gone unanswered. Many organizations, including the Minneapolis Police Department, have implemented implicit bias training, often as one-off sessions, despite the research that shows that interventions to reduce implicit bias generally have only short-term effects and are unlikely to lead to behavior change. The effects of these trainings are small because anti-Black racial bias is deep-seated in our brains and deeply rooted in the fabric of America. Anti-Black racial bias and animus persists because dominant American culture persistently denigrates Black people, even as it has made room to heroize a few Black individuals. Too many whites fail to interact with Blacks as equals. Rather, they keep Black people at a distance, support policies that reproduce the racial status quo, and elect people who clearly act against Black interests. I commend leaders who have used implicit bias trainings to start new conversations about racism in their organizations. However, I, like many others, fear their promulgation. There is a real risk that organizational leaders will stop there, confusing an opening act for the main event, and the hard work of eliminating systemic racism will not get done. In her consummate June 5th tweet, writer Lisa Coe noted, the revolution will not be diversity and inclusion trainings. I'd add implicit bias trainings to that list. We cannot simply tinker around the edges as these trainings often do. Instead, we must radically restructure society. As we take back power from the police, we must upend other systems as well. As a physician, I know that includes healthcare. Thus far in our efforts to eliminate racial disparities in patient access, experience, and outcomes, 
we too have been tinkering around the edges. Incrementalism or healthcare as usual is harmful to millions of black people whose symptoms are not taken seriously, who struggle against more powerful clinicians, researchers, and policymakers who construct their cultures and bodies as problems, whose access to care hinges on their employment in a country that systematically undereducates and therefore underemploys Black people, and who develop chronic conditions because they live in a racialized society and therefore have greater exposure to morbidity-inducing environments. As a country, we now face a choice. Substantively address racism head-on or, at our peril, discourage anti-racism discourse and action. Healthcare leaders have similar choices. Downplay calls to change the status quo or address the ways in which racism inhibits our ability to achieve the triple aim, to optimize the experience of care, improve population health, and reduce costs. If we are serious about the triple aim, we must tackle the ways in which racism negatively impacts mental and physical well-being, increases costs, impedes quality, and undermines population health goals. Many health systems, especially safety net systems and clinics, attempt to bridge the gaps that structural racism creates. However, even biomedicine's more holistic, biopsychosocial explanatory models often fail to account for racism's impact. Furthermore, consider the quadruple aim, which adds the goal of improving the experience of providing care. Black providers, nurses and staff, and other members of racialized minority groups often face a number of race-related stressors, coming from individuals, including patients, the institutions in which they work, as discussions about the minority tax demonstrate, and living while Black in the broader culture. While we must develop systems to detect and address bias at the point of care, it is more important to change the conditions that cut Black lives short. We must push for anti-poverty policies, such as universal health care, that would go a long way to reduce the economic ramifications of systemic racism. And we must seriously consider, rather than summarily dismiss reparations as a means to deal with racially stratified social determinants of health, we are well positioned today to rearticulate our commitment to optimal health for all and to reimagine healthcare operations and clinical teams so that others have less reason to doubt us. Leaders in clinical medicine, research, and medical education can choose to powerfully champion change or they can stand in the way. Like defunding the police, divesting from our current system will generate fear and discomfort, but this is what we must do if Black lives really matter.